You're listening to The Real Investment Show. So um, after a, you know, I love, uh, right now I'm, I'm looking at the uh, headlines on CNBC this morning and, you know, future seeking direction. And uh, uh, see, this is under the CNBC market alert, right? CNBC market alert. S&P looks to regain some of the losses. The market was down 2%. Can we, can we put this into some context here for a moment? I mean, you know, it was less than a 2% decline from peak to trough during this drawdown. And CNBC, you know, CNBC market alert, you know, banner. Uh, futures point to a mixed open. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? Um, this is this this is getting a little bit ridiculous in terms of the markets. We've gotten so complacent with markets going up that even a 1% or 2% drawdown, you know, you've got you know, trade, you know, professional traders huddled around kind of burning incense, chanting incan- incantations to the Fed to get some more liquidity coming in because we just can't stand these drawdowns. It's terrible. Um, but these are actually kind of healthy to have, unfortunately. But we've just gotten to the point that, well, that we shouldn't have them at all. Well, I think what makes it I think what's kind of scaring everyone is the market has become so predictable over the last four five, six months. Yeah. It, you know, if you look at a chart, you can draw a line straight through the trend. And if it ever deviates by about 2%, you either sell it or buy it. It dips right around the, the 15th of each month. It gets within spitting distance of the 50-day moving average, sometimes a hair through, mm-hmm. and that can be scary. <laughs> and, then, and then it bounces. And so this month is just slightly different, right? We deviate. We started heading down a few days early. Yeah. And you're right. We were down like 2%, maybe even more, Lance. I don't want to scare anyone, especially if you're driving. But we were down, you know, 2%. And and we deviated slightly from the game plan. And now you see it's not fear, but you certainly see concern. Right. Like, what if it goes down again? What if it goes down 3%? (laughs) You know, and then, you know, then I think it's really what if it goes below the 50 day moving average? Well, and there and there there is a risk of that, right? And you know, one of the things that is worth paying attention to is is people have become so very complacent to that support at the fifty-day moving average. And I kind of got into a Twitter, you know, debate yesterday over this, and you know, is that if you do break that fifty-day moving average, you could see potentially a lot of algorithms kick in and start seeing kind of a right. lot of selling all at once, just from that standpoint that we have broken that 50 day, which is now for algorithms, they've all been tightened up to where, okay, every time I see the 50 day, I automatically start buying stocks. You know, if with those algorithms go from buying to selling, that's a little bit bigger problem for the markets. And, and just think about the math behind it. What is the 50 day moving average? Right. It's the average of the last 50 days of prices. At some point, the it has to go below the average that's why it's called an average right, right? It, it can't continuously ride above the average i mean i guess it can but right. you know odds are that it trades below the average almost as much as it trades above the average so you know again we, we i think we say this a lot but right. the math dictates that that will happen eventually and probably sooner rather than later, Lance. Yeah, well, and again, and this is something uh, we're actually uh, publishing out this morning in our daily market commentary. So if you go by our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, there is a banner that says daily market commentary right on the homepage. 
and you click the get it now button there's an ad there's a banner that you can click on put your email address in and we release this every morning right at 7 30 at the stroke of 7 30 in the morning this email goes out and you'll get our daily market commentary and in that we actually talk about the internal breadth of the market and you know one of the things is, is that despite the fact the market has been rising here over the last three months in particular and we have this really, you know, no fear of, of, of worry at this point in the markets. The internals, the advancers versus decliners continue to deteriorate uh, so that internal breadth of the market has become a lot weaker. And, you know, as, as you know, we, t we you and I have talked about this, you know, kind of uh, a lot before is that the, the interesting part about what's supporting the market is just this very rapid rotation in the markets from technology to energies to staple to financials. And every day there's one sector that's kind of keeping the market supported. Money doesn't want to leave. It's just, you know, moving from one sector to the other very rapidly. Right. I feel like we would have to churn a third half of our portfolio every day if we wanted to even attempt to try to buy into those rotations. Mm -hmm. One day it's the Dow stocks, one day it's just the fangs. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's some of the fangs and not all the fangs. Right. And, you know, it's just one thing after another. So, you know, I think what we've been focused on is staying somewhat balanced. We certainly favor some sectors and, you know, are a little bit shy of the bogey and others. But we focus on our exposure. We focus on our returns. And this is the game that's that we have to play. We don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. So we, we're closely watching these moving averages. We're watching a breath. We understand that this isn't ideal, but markets usually are never ideal. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's just one of the more it, it's funny because it's one of the more boring environments probably either of us have seen for a long time. <laughs> but it's probably one of the more challenging environments, yeah. too. It really is. And and when you have this kind of complacency, it's you, you really there's not a lot you can do except kind of just hold on to the handlebars and, and just, you know, ride downhill at this point. So, you know, but but it does, you know, it is interesting. You know, there's a lot of expectation. Yesterday, we did bounce right off the 50 day moving average. This is really kind of the conversation in our daily market commentary as well as that. The question is now is, will it stick? You know, will this, you know, work out like every other time? And we rallied to slightly new highs and then turn, turn around a bit for a couple of weeks and then retest the 50-day moving average. Um, we are about to move into the seasonally strong period of the year, October, November, December. T typically tends to be a little bit better. Um, portfolio managers don't want to be caught short the market going into the end of the year because they've got to report their returns for the year. And that's really been one of the bigger drivers you know, for money managers is just trying to keep up with the index this year. Um, and do some type of risk management the same process you know it's it's, a, it's been a very challenging environment for for you know hedge funds as well as portfolio managers in general um you know but what do you what are your thoughts here and do you think we uh, you know just kind of continue the trend or you, do you think there's some risk on the horizon between now and the end of the year well what i i think there's definitely risk but what i would add to that whole conversation is that while it's been boring and predictable for us this is a dream environment for algorithms. Algorithms are just programs that find historical patterns and try to exploit them. Mm -hmm. So the more predictable markets are, and they've been very predictable over the last four months, we talked about that pattern a few minutes ago, mm -hmm. the more they engage, the more risk they take on. So, right, I mean, give me an Excel spreadsheet and in two seconds, I could write you an algorithm that says, if the price of the S&P equals the 50-day moving average, 
buy the dip, buy it, buy, <laughs> buy, buy, right? right? And there's also an upper line. If we reach that upper line, sell. Mm. And that program would have done wonders for the last, um, you know, four months. So the algorithms are emboldened to take more risk, to this trade worked last month and the month before, let's do even more. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of algorithms that are doing well and more money is pouring into them. They're taking more risk. They're not hedging as much. There are all kinds of things, but it leave, that's where the risk is. The risk is that the algorithms become offsides, that something happens, we drop below the 50-day moving average, and the algorithms say, wait, you told me to buy at the 50. I don't know what to do now. We're, mm. we're at the 70-day moving <laughs> average. Wait, we're at the 100-day moving average. Right. What do we do here? We're all sides. We have too much risk. We have to sell. That's the risk. But this pattern has been so dependable, it's hard to bet against another month of tapping the 50-day moving average and hitting a new record high. Right. And again, you know, and we're talking about small, you know, really kind of small incremental gains. Look, the market's up 20% this year. So, you know, it's been it's been a very, very good return year. Um, one of the larger ones in history. So, you know, it's been a, an excellent year, but it's been just this very kind of slow stair step higher. You know, we, we, we go up a little bit, trend sideways, test 50 day moving average, go up to a new level. But it's not been a real accelerated advance this year, which has kind of been interesting. But as we, you know, again, talking about internals, looking at the end of the year, you know, one of the things that, you know, the markets and particularly the algorithms are betting on is the continuation of all this liquidity coming in from the Fed. So, you know, we've talked about inflation. We've talked about inflationary pressures. We've talked about the employment. Um, jobless claims uh, are going to be out this morning, likely going to see jobless claims drop even more as more and more people are coming off the sidelines to go back to work now that the unemployment benefits have run out. This is, you know, what, what I want to kind of touch on when we come back from into the next segment is the, the Fed is, is really starting to get themselves into a problematic situation because you've got slowing rates of economic growth. Uh, if you take a look at uh, you know, a lot of the Citigroup Economic Surprise Index or a lot of the ISM numbers or um, you know, the NFIB numbers, et cetera, you're seeing optimism starting to consumer confidence. Those things are all starting to roll over, starting to show signs of weaker economic growth. Take a look at the Atlanta Fed. Those economic growth rates are all coming down sharply. Um, and then on the other side, you've got these inflationary pressures You've got near full employment. You've you've got the mandates filled that the Fed is supposed to be paying attention to for all this monetary liquidity that they're putting into markets. The question is, is are they in a trap and are they about to make a fairly large monetary mistake if they start trying to taper their balance sheet and potentially even raise interest rates to quell inflation here in the short term? I'm your host, Lance Roberts. We'll be back with Michael Leibowitz to answer that question about the Fed. Don't go away. Back to our conversation this morning. Uh, Michael Lee was joining us uh, as well to talk a little bit about what's going on with markets. And interestingly enough, um, one thing that is a little bit different this morning about previous buy the dips that we've seen is that markets are actually looking to open weaker this morning. That doesn't mean it's going to be that way all day. But historically, what we've seen is we've seen that first, you know, kind of buy the dip flurry, which we saw yesterday. The next day tends to be fairly strong as people run in to buy the dip. Not really seeing that commitment 
this morning. We'll, we'll again, we're going to see how the today plays out. Um, again, we talked a little bit about Apple's you know presentation yesterday. Really didn't impress a lot of people. Mike, Mike's a big fan of of Apple iPhones. Has his yeah. with him all the time. I love my battery life. <laughs> but yeah, the, the 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 Apple event really kind of underwhelmed people um, but it, with the new. It product. always seems to, right? They change the colors. They 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 make the le- the camera lens even more powerful. Right. And that seems to be just about it every time, right? Well, uh, I mean, there's a point. But, what else are you going to do with it? I mean, until they can get to the point to where you know the iPhone is embedded into your hand or something, to where you don't actually have to carry around a physical device. You know, innovation has kind of kind of met its limits. I mean, what well, else are you going to do with it? Well, they've kind of perfected it. Yeah. Right? It's all cosmetic at this point, right? They can make it a little skinnier. The Samsung, I think it's Samsung has that foldable one. Yeah. Like, that's all well, nice, that's, but none that, of it Yeah, and that's, that's a great idea until it breaks. I mean, that's just, you know, one of those things is, you know, there's the thing about technology where you just start doing stuff that's just, it's cool, but it's just is more problems than it's worth, right? So. Right. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just you know it'll be interesting to see how this plays out for Apple stock yesterday. Apple's had a, a bit of a sell-off here over the last you know week or so, and it's been under a little pressure with the rest of the market. Um, bounced a little bit yesterday off support, so we'll see if it kind of follows through uh, today with the market. We'll see. Um, but yeah, but so real quick, yeah, real quick, we were talking about the fifty-day moving average mm-hmm. and what always happens. And you mentioned that we, re- you know, we had a big rally yesterday. Yep. But there's no follow-through today. You know, we're down slightly. The other thing going on, which is also abnormal, is that foreign markets are lackluster this morning. Right. Normally, we'll we'll start with the rally, and then the party continues in Europe and Asia, and then again we get another. You know, then we, then we rally because they rallied, and and then that's it. Then yeah. we're back at the upper end <laughs> of the band, and then you got to wait three weeks for you know the next event. Yeah. But uh, it, it's a little this whole time, and the timing is different, and how other market, you know, the reaction this morning is a little different. Will well, it be different? Who knows? But well, there's in there, and there there are some things that are different that are going on right now. Again, you know, we talked about the internal deterioration, but one of the bigger events, and and this has been. And, and I do want to get back to the Fed. So, you know, we are going to get back to the Fed and this potential trap that they're in. But just a quick segue, you know, in in 2008, we were in the middle of a market that was selling off. Yes, we were going into a bear market. We were having a kind of a normal, you know, what you would call a normal bear market. In June, July, the markets were breaking down. We, we formed a head and shoulders pattern. We broke support. So markets were declining. Um, we were seeing some buying kind of going on during that decline, but we were just kind of going through a normal correctional process until September came around and Lehman filed for bankruptcy. And immediately what that did is it froze up the credit markets. Nobody wanted to trade with Lehman. Everybody was scared of what who, what everybody else's exposure was to Lehman. So nobody was trading with anybody. Uh, this is what we call counterparty risk. Nobody knew who, on, uh, nobody knew what person on the other side was going to go bankrupt next because of Lehman. So nobody wanted to trade with anybody. So the whole system froze up. That's where we got this very dramatic downturn in the markets. And we, of course, we had to Lehman file bankrupts. We had to bail out all the banks and try to solve the mortgage market and the whole nine yards, right? And that, that was the financial crisis. It really occurred in about two months. It was all because of Lehman. A confidence of trust. Confidence I mean, of a trust. lack of trust. Exactly. Um, Interestingly enough, and it, it doesn't get a whole lot of headlines, but there is a major 
lender in China called Evergrande, which 300 billion plus in, in capital that is out in loans. They have done all kinds of construction loans, real estate deals, all kinds of stuff. Those bonds have been halted from trading. This is very much on the same scale as we saw with Lehman. Now, the question is, of course, is do they have all the counterparty risk and, and will China just bail out the bank eventually? But it's been interesting because China hasn't come to their rescue yet. This has been going on for a couple of months. And I would have expected China to step in at this point and start to bail out Evergrande or just take receivership of the company or something. But they haven't done that. And now the, they've already they announced yesterday that no interest payments are going to be made on the debt. Um, and now the bonds have halted trading. So, you know, it kind of looks like China may say, hey, you know, this one's on you. <laughs> you know, you deal with it. But this is something that has the potential to, to create a credit event. And, and again, bear markets are almost always a function of some credit-related event um, because that's really what drives markets and economies is credit. And that has that risk. It seems to have that potential risk for it. We haven't seen it show up. Markets don't seem to be paying any attention to it, but it seems like it could be one of those risks that we're not paying attention to. It definitely does. And China seems to be taking a let's just see what happens approach. Right. China's been doing a lot of a lot of, for lack of a better word, a lot of stuff lately. Right. They, they are really trying to improve the productivity of their economy. They're trying to take fluff out of the economy. They know that there's a ton of fluff in the real estate markets. Right. How many of these massive cities that were never lived in exist? Right. And that's the business that Evergrande is in. They're in the property business. And that market, property in general, has been plummeting in China. Mm -hmm. So China feels to me like they're trying to adapt to a more productive society that will help all their people. Mm -hmm. Now, they're doing it in a communist sort of way, right? You can only use video games for so long. They're getting rid of Bitcoin miners. They're not they're dictating the terms. Right. But nonetheless, Evergrande falls right into this. There was excessive speculation in property based on what they've done with the casinos, too. They're 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 limiting what the casinos can do in Hong Kong. Right. It seems to me that letting Evergrande fail is probably is not out of question. And unlike the U.S., where we would never let anyone with more than 20 <laughs> bucks in their pocket fail. That's oh, no, no, probably, no, 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 no. I, I'm going to disagree with you. We were, we are more than happy bucks. to let the the average Joe fail. We just that's won't true. let we just won't let the the very rich mega corporations fail. That's, that's you know, we need to we need to that classify who will let fail and and won't. <laughs> right, right. So you know, it, it seems like Evergrande's going to fail. Right, yeah. they're already technically in default because they're missing payments on their bonds. And well, when you, when you halt, I don't know, when you halt trading on your bonds, I'd say not technically, you're in default. Well, <laughs> well the missing the interest payments is truly the, yeah. that's the one. Yeah. Right. Once you do that, you've defaulted. You haven't made good on your, your uh, bond, right. on your debt. So I don't know. It looks like they're going to default in some way. What does that mean? Will China make all their Chinese investors good, but let all the foreign investors fail? Could be. I mean, this is. Again, this is China. This isn't, you know, this isn't the U.S. or Europe or yeah. other countries. Well, and I guess the thing that we don't know um, is, you know, the, the, the issue with Lehman was is that Lehman had connections to J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse. Um, you know, you know, you pick a major bank. 
um, or a major investment firm anywhere in the world, they had ties to Lehman. They were doing deals with Lehman on something, on some bond issuance or whatever. I guess the question that we don't know is what other major banks around the world have exposure to Evergrande and to what degree? You know, that's but again, this kind of reminds me of the whole Chinese pandemic. You know, back in February of 2020, we were lightening up exposure in our portfolios because we were looking at this situation with a pandemic going, you know, hey, this this could be a problem and markets are really extended, very complacent. There seems to be risk here that nobody's paying attention to. And then about four weeks later, they shut down the economy. This kind of has that same feeling is that, you know, this is one of those events that nobody's paying attention to, but it seems like there's potentially some more risk here. And the markets are so complacent that it kind of makes that risk even more, you know, dangerous at this point for the markets. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that's Evergrande in the ninth inning ready yeah. to get TK, TKO'd. But, but you look at like the U.S. office property market, which is, you know, massive seems to me they're in the third or fourth inning of a similar yeah. story right now. True. Uh, when we come back, I do want to hit on this issue of, of the Fed. Of course, uh, you've got, you know, you know, clear evidence of rising inflation uh, from producer price indexes to consumer price indexes. We talked a little bit earlier about, you know, individuals can't eat iPads, but they sure have this problem buying the same amount of food and services every week because their paycheck goes doesn't go as far. Um, what does the Fed do now? We'll talk about that with Mike Leibowitz when we come back from the break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show this morning. So just in case you missed our open this morning, we talked a little bit about the Apple iPhone. Uh, they announced their new product day yesterday. I know you're going, what does this have to do with the Fed? Just hold on a second. Um, and part of their announcement was that they won't raise their prices. In other words, you can buy the new iPhone 13 for the same price as the iPhone 12. Awesome. Right. This uh, reminded me, of course, of Bill Dudley back when he was talking to a group of workers in Queens uh, at the time back in 2011. Inflation was a bit problematic at that point. Prices were going up. CPI was up. And Bill Dudley said, don't worry about this because the Fed's got this under control. And look, take a look at your, your iPad. You know, you get so much more power in the iPad even though you're paying a little bit more for the iPad, you get so much more power for it, it's actually deflationary, right? You're, you're, and this is what we call hedonics when we measure inflation. You're getting more for what you're paying, and so that's deflationary. And, of course, somebody quipped out of the crowd that's you know a worker just trying to make ends meet. He says, yeah, you can't eat iPads. <laughs> and, and this is kind of the case where we are today is that we take a look at CPI, PPI, um, in particular, and those costs are going up for the average American, right? The average American is just trying to make ends meet. If you take a look at real wages, now this is wages, less inflation. Those wages haven't grown enough to keep up with pricing pressure. So as individuals, you know, my, myself, Mike, you, we all kind of buy the same stuff. We go to the grocery store. We buy the same groceries pretty much every week, the same amount. We buy the same amount of gas every week. Um, we pay the same mortgage payment every every month. We pay the same insurance payment every month. Those change on an annual basis. But when we look at our cost of living, we really kind of measure this in a basket. We say, what did we pay for all this stuff last year? What are we paying for it this year? And that differential is inflation. And particularly when all of a sudden, our, our standard of living costs us more, and we don't have the money to pay for it. So now we've got to go into start tapping on our credit cards to make ends meet. 
And that's what the average American experiences, right? They can't eat right. iPads, but they can certainly eat that basket of goods that they have to deal with on a daily, weekly basis. Now, why do I tell you all this? Because this is the, the big question here. The Fed is responsible for two things. Their congressional mandate covers price stability, which is inflation, and full employment. So they're supposed to help everybody get a job and keep prices under control. When we take a look at jobless claims, we take a look at employment data, pretty much looks like they've achieved their mandate of full employment. We've got 2.2 million more jobs and there are people unemployed. So there's no reason for somebody not to have a job at this point. And inflationary prices are definitely rising here. 5.4% annualized rate of inflation um, at this point. And, uh, and again, wages aren't keeping up with that cost pushing more and more into individuals into, into debt to, to make ends meet. Mike, is the Fed getting themselves into a bit of a, a quandary here? They've got a meeting coming up next week. What do you think they're going to say? So I, I think this is going to be a very interesting meeting because expectations are now set. You know, there was a Wall Street Journal article late last week that basically said they were going to announce something at this meeting and they will start tapering in the early November meeting, right? So the, that's the market expectation at this point. And that article came from, it, it was most likely a leak from the Fed. They want that out there, right? So that's kind of been our expectation is that they would start tapering probably at that November, I think it's second or third meeting. And I, I think the market to some degree widely expects that. But what's interesting is, and, and you know, every day there's a member of the Fed saying, we got it. We got to taper now. We got to taper yesterday. It's too late. I, and I, it really seems to me like they're very concerned about inflation. And when you look through all their comments, they put out every six weeks what's called the beige book. Mm -hmm. And a beige book is the summary from all 12 Fed districts. And each summary is like two pages, but there's an initial summary that's a paragraph long. And in our market commentary, we showed that every single one of those 12 commentaries had something about can't hire enough workers, wage pressures, right? So there's wage pressures, which is inflationary pressure. And I think of what a lot of hawks, hawks are ones that want to taper, that want to reduce the amount of monetary policy. They've been very vocal, right? Mm -hmm. Very vocal. So. So the impression from the Fed is that they want to tighten because the hawks have been a lot more vocal than the doves. Now that's and that leads us to our expectation, which is a market expectation. Mm -hmm. But in in uh, the article I put out yesterday, it, it, it the, the math isn't quite the same. So there's 18 members on the Federal Reserve Board of those 18, 11 of them have votes. And I believe they're still missing. There's one more that Biden needs to uh, put into a seat. But either way, there's 11 voters. So if you break down just those 11 voters, not not the 18, some of which have been very vocal about tightening that can't vote. And you look at who can vote. The, the math becomes a little different and it's broken down. Five, five of the voters are dovish. Four of the voters are these hawks that have been very vocal and two are neutral. So just from a voting perspective, the doves have it. Then you then you break down who are those doves and those doves are the most influential members of the Fed. It's Powell. It's his vice chair, Clarita. It's John Williams, who runs the New York Fed, which some would argue is the most important job at the Fed. 
and it's Leo Brennard who potentially could be replacing Powell in February. Mm -hmm. She seems to be, if Powell's not, not renominated, she's probably the odds on favorite right now. So four of those five votes are from very powerful people. So, you know, you can make a case and based on what Powell said, he wants more data. He's scared about the Delta variant. He's scared about this. He's scared about that. He's scared about the markets collapsing on his watch and not getting nominated. That's what he's scared about, because we know that the Delta variant is showing many signs of peaking, mm -hmm. right? That its effect on the economy has not been nearly as grave as what we saw a year ago, nine months ago. And employment is pretty much back to where it was. And like you said, there's so many jobs available. If, if you're unemployed, there's jobs available in most cases. Right. And prices are anything but stable. Right. So, but do, do, you know, you can do all the math you want, but Powell holds the cards. Yeah. And, and that's true. But, you know, the, the, I think the, the problem for the Fed, though, is, you know, you've got on one side, like you said, the Delta variant, but you've got slowing economic growth. You've got a lot of things that, you know, really the Fed could point to and say, yeah, I know we've got inflation. I know we've got full employment, but the economy's slowing down and we need to keep supporting the economy. So, you know, we need to keep doing this $120 billion a month. And, and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of market participants that think the Fed will never taper at this point because right. they can't. Well, here's here's one of the most interesting of those confidence. Consumer confidence has been plummeting mm -hmm. in in a number of surveys. And if, if you look at why it's plummeting, it's because of inflation. It's you know, and if you look at expectations for inflation and expectation for income or wages. Basically, you know, we, we put out a graph of this a few days ago. Those surveys show that people expect to have negative wage growth after inflation. Mm. So they think that inflation will outpace whatever they're going to, you know, whatever raises they get on their on their earnings. And basically, it's like taking a pay cut. That is why confidence is failing. So if the Fed were to say, well, confidence is failing, that's going to translate to economic to slower economic growth, then we better not do anything. They're just stoking the inflationary fires. Right. So, you know, they're 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 trapped. They're, they're really trapped and they need to do something. They need to taper is what they need. Well, to do. but the problem is, again, so if you taper. Now you crash the market potentially. And, you know, that leads to less confidence. Um, right. slower economic growth. That's the whole reason they inflate asset prices is to create confidence to boost consumption. The other side of the coin is if you don't do it, you keep running the, the risk of surging inflation. So again, it really seems like almost whatever choice they make, they're trying to really thread a needle here. And even the smallest mistake could have, you know, fairly large consequences, either economically or financially or both. Or more importantly, Lance, for Jerome Powell's job. Well, Jerome Powell has yet to be renominated and normally that process that process should have begun already. He should have been named. Yeah. So someone is holding a stick over his head. Does that mean that Biden wants him to hold off? on taper does that mean he wants him to taper to fight inflationary fears well i, I don't think, know. You know you know if i had if i had to bet i would say that uh, uh, two things one biden probably forgot he needs to renominate him but two um <laughs> you know he probably needs him to stay with 120 billion dollars a month they've got to raise this debt ceiling um 
coming up. I mean, we're on the deadline for raising the debt ceiling. You've got $4 trillion plus that you need to issue in debt just for funding for the next year. That's just mandatory spending and, and current uh, discretionary spending for the government budget. Not doesn't even include the $1.2 trillion for the infrastructure bill or the $3.5 trillion or whatever number that's going to wind up being for the human infrastructure bill. So unless the Fed's buying bonds, you've got another problem because if the Fed's not buying bonds and there's no buyers in the natural market for buying bonds, interest rates are going to right. go up and that's going to crash the economy because everybody forgets the entire economy is sensitive to interest rates. If interest rates go up, mortgage refis stop, home buying stops, car buying stops, credit card spending stops, all that's tied to interest rates. And if interest rate payments start going up, people simply can't afford to buy stuff or won't. They'll psychologically say, well, you know, interest rates ticked up here. Better wait for them to come back down again because they always come down the last 30 years. They've always gone right. lower. I'll just wait. There's a real problem here. No, you know, that's what I'm saying. No matter almost what the Fed does, seems like they've got themselves into a box that any decision they make has a negative consequence at some point down the road. Right. And let's be clear about what taper means. Taper just means we're going to keep buying. We're just going to buy a little bit less than we bought the right. month before. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, I still think the Fed starts tapering in November. But they think they're going to end tapering, according to that Wall Street Journal article, mid-2022. Mm -hmm. Fed's never going to end tapering. That Keep that little secret between us, Lance. <laughs> but the Fed is not going to end tapering. They can't, for the reasons you just laid out. Exactly. All right, wraps up the show for the day. Get by the website. Our daily market commentary will be out here in about 30 minutes. So if you subscribe with the website now, we'll deliver it right to your email inbox. Of course, uh, Mike's latest article is out on the website as well. Our newsletter, Technically Speaking, Ask Questions. Whatever we can do to help you, more than happy to do it. Let us know what we can do for you. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. It's a rich man's world.